0: Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning back in God's precious Word. Actually, turn with me this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I hope and pray that you and your family had a wonderful time of Thanksgiving. It is right and appropriate that we, especially as believers, stop and, and take time to take stock of what God has done for us and to, to give thanks to Him for all the abundant provisions in our lives. and. You know, this week as I was thinking about our time together this morning, I don't always uh, take time to do a special message for Thanksgiving weekend, uh, but as I contemplated our time in Hebrews 4 last week, talking about God's rest and this this wonderful eternal future that believers have to look forward to of eternal uh, sinless perfection in the presence of God and what a wonderful day that would be, as I considered that in conjunction with the the appropriate uh, giving of thanks this week, my, my heart started to mull over this conundrum that we live in today as believers. We understand that our eternal future uh, will be glorious, that there's much to anticipate as we look forward to being before the, the very presence of God. But what about the remainder of our temporal lives here in this fallen world? It's not easy to live here. We live in a world that is that's full of, of vanity, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. We live in a world that is underneath groaning underneath, in fact, the weight of the curse of sin. We live a life in which though we are being sanctified and we are progressing in holiness by God's grace, the truth is we still battle sin every day. We, we are at war internally with our flesh, and we are at war externally with, with, with the, the world around us that has fallen and temporal and passing away. And, you know if we're not careful, the combination of the, the world outside of us that's fallen and the internal battle with sin can tempt us towards discontentment and weariness, or a state of melancholy and even despair. And so, having seen the glories of the life to come, and we'll return there again next week, I want us now to consider this very important question. How do we enjoy life in a fallen world? How do we enjoy life in a fallen world? And to answer that question, there's no better place to go in Scripture than the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an example of what we call wisdom literature. It's a collection of wise sayings and personal advice from the wisest man to ever live on this planet outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that King Solomon, who is the author of this wonderful book, was gifted by God with divine or supernatural extraordinary wisdom. God gave him this gift in response to a a prayer, a request that Solomon made in 1 Kings chapter 3. Let me read to you this interaction between God and Solomon. This is 1 Kings 3, we'll begin in verse uh, 5. It says, In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You've shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he's walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you reserve for him this great loving kindness that you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father, David, yet I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you've chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Verse 10, It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. Now, when I say God gave Solomon supernatural wisdom, I don't mean he had full divine wisdom. I mean that, that God gave him this gift of wisdom, and it was affirmed. People started to come from all around to sit under the wisdom of Solomon. We have the testimony of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. The Queen of Sheba says, the reports weren't even half as much as your actual wisdom and grandeur now that I am here to see it in person. So this is Solomon, the author of our book that we're going to study this morning. Unfortunately, Solomon did not stay true to Yahweh, but went away into idolatry. What I believe we have here in Ecclesiastes is Solomon in his old age looking back now at the life that he has lived and applying the wisdom that God gave to him. I believe Solomon is repentant. He's regretting the life that he has lived and he's now telling us how to live in a different way than he chose to live the bulk of his life. So we have this gift in Ecclesiastes of how to live life In this fallen world, and yet how to live it in a way that honors God and that's full of joy. But here's the issue. And this is probably, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you know this. There is this this pressing problem that we have in this fallen world. And Solomon coins it as vanity. Vanity of vanities. Now the word vanity in Hebrew simply means a vapor or a breath. It's, it's like the steam off of your cup of coffee in the morning. It's here and it's gone. And this fallen world is full of things that Solomon characterizes as vanity. Let me just give you, uh, as, uh, for way of context, a few examples that Solomon gives throughout this book of vanity. Here's an example of vanity that we deal with in life. We cannot keep the fruit of our labor. Ecclesiastes two eighteen to 19 he says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I've labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Or how about this? Solomon says it's vanity that riches do not satisfy. Ecclesiastes 5:10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. Solomon says another aspect of vanity in this fallen world is the fact that the future is uncertain. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1, For I've taken all this to my heart and explained it, that righteous men, wise men in their deeds, are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred Anything awaits him. What he's saying is we don't know the future, whether it's going to go well for us or whether it's going to go poorly. And finally, another example of vanity is the fact that death is certain. It's a certainty. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 2 and 3, It's the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. What he means is all die. He's not talking about their eternal state with God. He's talking about in this temporal life, all will die. Now some of you are thinking, I wasn't struggling with depression when I came in today, but I'm strangely feeling it coming on um, the longer you talk. You know, that's why so many people have the wrong impression of the book of Ecclesiastes. They stay away from it because they think of it as just doom and gloom. It's depressing, it's sad, and I don't want to be sad, and so I'm not going to read Ecclesiastes. But what you miss when you think of Ecclesiastes in that way is that Solomon's actual intention is encouragement. He actually wants us to leave the book of Ecclesiastes with a sense of encouragement what he's doing in this wonderful book is teaching us how to live in spite of the vanity, in spite of the vanity in a fallen world, and to honor God and enjoy the temporal gifts that he's given to us. That's Solomon's goal. He wants us to understand that, yes, there is vanity. And he, he says that wisdom is not to turn our eyes away from the vanity of life in a fallen world, but to think deeply about it. To, to reason about the vanity in this life, to accept that it's a, a part of life in a fallen world, and then to live in light of those truths. The truth is we waste so much time either being frustrated over the vanities of life or doing our level best to try and conquer them. I'll just work harder. I'll save more. I'll be a better person. And I'll conquer this sense of vanity, this, this breath, this vapor in my life, this, this mean, sense of meaningless. And Solomon says, don't do that. You waste your time and energy. You cannot conquer or rid this world of the vanity that's part of it because it is a fallen world. The key to enjoying life is to understand the gifts that God has given in this life and to be in right relationship with God himself. It's interesting, Solomon's approach in this book is perfectly balanced. He does not tell us on the one hand to simply run into hedonism, that is, just seeking pleasure as an end in itself, as if pleasure is the highest aim of life. He doesn't say that. But at the same time, he doesn't say that we should live pleasureless, joyless lives as if that is more holy than enjoying life. Instead, he strikes the perfect balance between those two things, and he says, no, I want you to fear God And I want you to enjoy life. To see this and see what it looks like, we're going to study this morning Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 to 10. The theme of the book as a whole is this. Enjoy life in light of divine judgment. Enjoy life in light of divine judgment. Now let's read our text specifically Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 to 10. Go then, eat your bread and happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he's given you under the sun for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you've labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, Do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Now, the theme of this section is simply this. Resolve to enjoy the brief life God has given to you. Resolve to enjoy the brief life that God has given to you. And he begins with this call to to action. In verse 7 of chapter 9, he says this. Go then. It's a command, go. I want you to wake up. For this whole time, Solomon's been bouncing between explaining and exploring the vanities of life and calls to enjoy what we can of this fallen world. And it's almost as if he comes towards the end of this book now and he says, wake up. Go, in light of all the things that I've just said to you, and in light of the fact that, yes, life is riddled with these vanities because it is a fallen world, I'm going to call you to action. And after telling us to go, he's going to give us a list of commands. Go and do these specific things. You want to know, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as one who has a right relationship with God, how to think about enjoying life for the remainder of this temporal life in a fallen world, Go and do these things, he says. He's going to give us four different aspects of life in which our enjoyment should be evident. Four aspects of life that God gives us to enjoy in this temporal world. Aspect number one is good food. Good food, amen? Amen. Verse 7, good food. He says, go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Here Solomon reminds us that one of the the common good gifts that God has given to us to enjoy is the gift of good food. You understand that that food was not given to mankind only to fulfill his dietary needs. Uh, Food was not given to us just simply to take care of our physical bodies. It certainly sustains us, don't get me wrong, but it's more than that. We won't go there this morning, but you can turn back to Genesis chapter 2 in the the garden as God tells Adam and Eve that I've created all of this for food for you. And he says, I want you to eat freely from it. I want you to eat freely. He doesn't command you you have to eat this for breakfast and this for lunch and this for dinner. And he says, eat freely from the the food that I've provided for you. It's intended to be a gift. Think about it this way. Have you ever considered the fact that... That God did not have to create food in such a way that it tastes good. He didn't have to do that. If food only existed to sustain our bodies for nourishment, it could have been just bland. Just an exercise that we do each day to take care of our bodies. But that's not what he did. Why did God create such a variety? Think of the fruits. Think of your favorite fruit. Think of the components that make up that fruit and why it's, why it's your favorite fruit. The way, it, the way it tastes, the way it smells, the way that you feel when you eat it. God made this full variety and he made it to taste good on purpose. And he gave you taste buds and a sense of smell so that you could enjoy that food for what it is. Because he's good. Think about This further, I mean, for me and our family, vacation revolves around food. I don't know about you, but I often spreadsheet the food that we're going to eat. I'm looking at the restaurants ahead of time of where we're going to be because for me, vacation means eating good food in a place that's not your house for more than 24 hours, and we're on vacation. Food is a part of our family life. Food was a part of the Old Testament. Think about the festivals that God commanded for the Israelites. Those festivals, of course, had deep symbolic meaning, But also, in addition to that, they were meant to be enjoyed. There was food. There were meals that the people of Israel looked forward to eating at those festivals because God intended for them to enjoy it and to remember. Even something as simple as a good cup of coffee in the morning is something to be enjoyed. It's something that God's given. It's one of His good gifts. Or if you're a tea person, tea, whatever it may be. But that's a good gift from God that He means for us to enjoy particularly in an agricultural society like the one that Solomon was a part of. This has an even deeper sense of, of symbolism because a high percentage of the people hearing this or reading this were, were involved in the daily process of getting that food from the ground to the table. When he says that, that he wants them to eat their bread and drink their wine, those are, those are fruits of the ground. Those are things that these people had labored for And and God had blessed the fruit of their labor, and now they're at the table literally eating the fruit of their labor that God has given to them. And so he says, eat it with joy, eat it with happiness. But don't miss the fact that the word eat and the word drink are both commands. They're imperatives. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, the reality is we are all too tempted to be distracted by the vanities of life and we often eat good food and drink good drink without really taking time to enjoy them as the gifts that they are. And so Solomon says you have to make an intentional choice when you sit down to eat that you're going to enjoy it as a good gift from a good God. It's going to take mental thought, intentionality. It means that you're going to choose to set aside in that moment the pressures and frustrations and failed plans and unknowns that come from the vanity of life, and you're going to choose in that moment to enjoy it as the gift that God intends for it to be. Solomon says, you have to be intentional. Yes, life is riddled with vanity, but it's also riddled with the good gifts of God. But you're going to have to choose to slow down, give thanks, And enjoy them as a good gift. Eat and drink with happiness, with cheerfulness. And he goes on to say, For God has already approved your works. I want you to eat and drink this way because God's already approved your works. Now, there's some disagreement as to exactly Solomon's meaning here, but I think he's really referring to the fact that the people are literally eating the fruit of their labor. That's true of us even in our society where much of a, many of us are removed from the actual process of growing our food. Still, you work and you earn money and you buy food with that money. You're still eating from the fruit of your labor. And so it's there on the table before you. He says he's already approved of your works. How do you know? Because you're eating it. Right? Rejoice in it. He's given this gift to you. He's caused your labor to bear good fruit. You know, this gives new meaning To the way we pray before we eat. When we pray over our food before a meal, understand we're not actually blessing the food. I did do that once in Africa on a mission trip because I wasn't really sure what was in this thing I was about to eat. That's the closest I've ever prayed to actually, God, please, please bless this food. What we're actually doing when we pray is giving thanks. It's a recognition of the fact that what we're about to partake of and the people around the table with us are an an expression of the goodness of a good God and that all of it has come from His hand. Let's be honest. Sometimes either the busyness of life or the difficulties of life uh, distract us and we're so heavy-hearted or heavy-minded that we just rush into a meal without giving genuine thanks and without enjoying it as a gift. And Solomon's point is that life is too short and too unpredictable to waste these opportunities to enjoy the good gifts in this life, even simple things like food. Now, I do want to say with all of the encouragements that Solomon's going to give us this morning, there is this important caveat, and that is that that Solomon is not negating the fact that there are times of real grief in this life, and that it's okay in those times of grief to be grieving. In fact, he said earlier in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he said there's an appointed time for everything. And there's a time for every event under heaven. And then in verse 4 he says, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The Apostle Paul, and similarly to the Romans, would say in Romans 15, 15, that we as believers are to rejoice with those who rejoice, but we're also to weep with those who... Who weep? And so, if you're here this morning and you're you're going through a real difficult time, where real grief is a part of your life in this moment, understand that Solomon's not saying just just fake it, just conceal your pain. Christians just need to act like everything's fine. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that all of us need to understand that in this life, that is full of the vanities of life, there is still much to be thankful for and many things to enjoy. And especially when we sit down to enjoy the food that God has given. He's calling us to have a biblical perspective in which we look for the rays of God's kindness that shine through the clouds of vanity because they're all around us. There's a second aspect of life that he calls us to enjoy. This second aspect really is more of an expression of joy than a thing to enjoy in and of itself. Aspect number two is personal appearance personal appearance in verse 8. He says, Let your, your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. When he says, Let your clothes be white all the time, he's highlighting a fact that was true in his culture, but it's also true in ours, and that is we have different kinds of, of clothing for different kinds of events. We, we express our mood or, or the kind of thing we're going to based on how we dress. In his culture... White clothing was worn at a, at a festival, at a celebration. It was a, an expression of happiness. You put that on when you were happy or going to something enjoyable, as opposed to wearing sackcloth or, or black clothing when you were in a time of mourning or despair. We understand this even today. We, we can tell that a person is in a time of grief or mourning often by the way they present themselves and their appearance outwardly. The second description in verse 8 is much like the first. He says, And let not oil be lacking on your head. Of course, anointing the head with oil often had symbolic and ceremonial meanings for the people of Israel. But understand that anointing yourself with oil was also a part of getting ready for the day. It was a kind of oil they would use just to get ready. It It was helpful for doing your hair. It gave brightness to one's face. And it was often fragrant, so it acted like a type of cologne or a type of perfume. This is why Jesus instructs his disciples when it comes to fasting to make sure that they anoint themselves with oil that day, Matthew 6. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Apparently the Pharisees would neglect their external outward appearance on the days they fasted to send a signal to the world, I'm fasting, I'm a spiritual person. Jesus says, don't do that. Anoint yourself with oil. Look the way you would always look on a given day. The closest thing that we have to this in our culture would be the way that men and women get ready for the day. Where a a lady will do her makeup or style her hair. Men will shave or trim their beard or comb their hair if they have hair. Whatever they do. But unless a person is sick or grieving or doesn't plan to leave the house at all that day, typically they'll pay some attention to their outward appearance before they walk out of the house. And if they don't do that, then it's recognizable. And people begin to wonder, are they okay? Has something happened that I don't know about because they've they've not taken care of their physical appearance? In the same way, Solomon says, I want you to express yourself outwardly with an expression of joy. Even in the way you dress, let your appearance show that you have the right biblical perspective on life. Walt Kaiser says this, "...instead of allowing grief to consume one's life, Solomon urges that whatever remains of the unexplained mystery in our lives must not prevent us from enjoying life. The tendency to brood and to mope has to be resisted in the lives of those who fear God, who take life as a gift from God's hand... And who receive his plan and enablement to enjoy that life. And so understand in this instruction in verse 8, Solomon is not really telling you what to wear. He's telling you what perspective to have on life. To see life as it really is. A gift from a good God. And that when we have that perspective, it's going to show up even in the way we present ourselves in public. There's a third aspect of life that is to be enjoyed here. Aspect number three in verse nine is married love. Married love. Look back at verse nine. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love. Here Solomon speaks of the enjoyment that God intends to come from the union between a man and a woman in marriage. And this has always been God's intention since Genesis chapter two when he created marriage. Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make it. Him a helper suitable for him. In verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he'd taken from the man, and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed understand that from the beginning marriage the institution the covenant of marriage in the in the eyes of God is not simply a duty that man must carry out but it was intended to be a lifelong gift of sacrificial love and companionship for those two people So, if marriage was intended from the beginning by God to be a gift, then why does Solomon have to command us to enjoy it? Think about that. The word enjoy is a command. Enjoy the life that you have with the woman that you love. The truth is, even in this area of life, vanity has crept in, sin has had an effect. You remember in Genesis 3.16, this is part of the curse that's given to the woman because of sin. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Here's the the idea. From the beginning, God created the marriage relationship in such a way that, that the husband is to lovingly lead his wife sacrificially. And, and the, the wife would then submit to that leadership with joy. That's how it was in the garden, and it was good, and it was unbroken, it was uninterrupted. But when sin entered the world, that relationship now became tarnished. It became difficult to, to the point that the wife would be tempted to usurp the leadership role of her husband, and dominate over him. And in response, the husband would would be tempted to rule with a heavy hand and try to forcibly place her back in a place of submission. And so it would create this tension in the marriage relationship. And we see that playing out uh, on the pages of Scripture and, of course, even into our lives today. And so marriage itself has been affected by the fall. It's been affected by sin, and it's been affected by this vanity, as Solomon calls it. For those of you who are here who are are unmarried and maybe praying to be married, longing to be married, it, it may sound odd to you to think of having to be commanded to enjoy marriage. But the truth is, like every other aspect of life, marriage too has been affected. It's been damaged by sin. And so we have the word enjoy in the form of a command. As I thought about that, I thought about some of the things that often trip us up in marriage that keep us from enjoying it as the gift that God intended for it to be. Now there are many things that we could mention in that regard, but there are two categories of things that I want to mention this morning. Here are sort of thieves of our joy, joy stealers in marriage. One is unrealistic expectations. We might say unbiblical expectations. You know, we can easily make a list of idealistic expectations and ambitions that we have for our spouse or that we have for our marital relationship. And then we see it as our job to push and push and push until our spouse conforms to that image or our marriage conforms to that mold that we've created. And we think, man, if if he would just be more like this, or if, if she would just be more like this, then our marriage would just take off. And then we would have the joy in marriage that God intended. But notice that Solomon doesn't say that. He just says, enjoy it. Start now. Right now, where your marriage is, start enjoying the things in your marriage that you can enjoy. With all the vanity mixed in, recognize that marriage itself is a gift, and choose, by God's grace, to enjoy it. Now, that means, again, that there's going to be a willful choice, a willful choice to stop focusing our attention only on the things in our marriage that we want to change or the things that we would like to look differently, and we're going to start listing out the things about our spouse and about our marriage that we're thankful for. Giving praise to God for this person that God's brought into our life, this imperfect person, but this gift nonetheless. And we're going to focus our attention on those things that are most admirable in our spouse and in our marriage. And guess what happens? In that kind of relationship, it actually breeds good conversation in which we can actually address some of the weaknesses that we have and areas of growth that we need to see but we get to enjoy the process along the way instead of seeing those expectations as the prerequisite for enjoying marriage. Solomon says, no. Choose to enjoy life with the woman that you love, with the man that you are married to. Now, this is not an excuse for sin. All right, this is not saying just be as you are and you don't have to work on anything. It's not saying, that's also not saying that there aren't times of where there may be a situation of abuse, where someone needs to be removed from that relationship for their own protection. It's not addressing any of those things. What it's addressing in context is the fact that your marriage is not going to be perfect because we live in a life, a world, riddled with vanity. And so don't be distracted by that or allow that to steal your joy in marriage, but choose to enjoy it even still. There's a second thief that steals our joy in marriage. And I've just entitled it Preoccupation with Vanity. Preoccupation with Vanity. You know, often we miss out on opportunities to enjoy the time that we do have with our spouse because our minds are consumed with the vanities and worries of life. Work was really hard that day. Or perhaps you're, you're already anticipating the meetings you have coming tomorrow. The budget was just too tight to do that thing that you wanted to do or to buy that thing you wanted to buy. The kids seem ungrateful for all that you do for them. You, you felt this strange pain in your knee when you ran that morning and now your mind is reeling wondering are, are your running days coming to an end? Are you, are you aging to the point that you won't be able to exercise in the way that you want to? We look in the mirror and our face is hanging a little lower than it did the year before. It seems that when we have the health to enjoy certain special activities, we don't have the money. And then when we're old enough to have saved the money, we don't have our health. Vanity. Vanity. This is what Solomon is doing in this letter. He's he's giving these examples, and we can do this in our own minds, and we just build up these examples of things that are frustrating us, and they're not going our way to the point that we just want to scream, Vanity of vanities. It's all meaningless. Solomon says, you're missing it. Because while you're mulling over all those things on the couch, your spouse is sitting right there next to you. Or she or he is in the other room doing something else. And this is the gift. This time you have right now is the gift. Get up off the couch. Stop mulling over the vanities of life. Go find her. Go find him and says, hey, want to hang out? Well, I want to spend some time together. Solomon says, don't miss the gift because you're preoccupied with the vanity. You know, sometimes we get frustrated over the fact uh, that we don't have as much time as we wish we had with someone, so we waste the time that we have. Solomon's trying to warn us against that. Turn off the phone. Turn off the TV. Get up off the couch. Find your spouse and spend some time together. Solomon says, this is a gift. This is why you worked all day, is to come home and do this. Don't waste this thinking about that. And here's the reason this is so important, by the way. All the days of your fleeting life, Solomon says says, I want you to enjoy the life that you have with the one that you love all the days of your fleeting life. And by the way, if you're, if you're here and you're not married and you desire that, just think of the other relationships, the godly people that, that God has put in your life, and spend time with them. Don't waste the time you have for Christian fellowship. Don't, don't be wasting that time just thinking on the vanities of life, but spend time in the relationships that God has given you. You too can apply these things. And it's important that we do that because life is fleeting. His point is time is short. He's not just trying to be a Debbie Downer and cause us constantly to be thinking about the end of our lives. But he's, he's saying, listen, you can't afford to waste this evening. You can't afford to waste this opportunity and this gift. Because this life is passing away and it's passing away really, really quickly. But he also reminds us of this. Looking back at the text, verse 9, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. Here Solomon brings up the important reality that it is God who has ordained our days. Every day you have has been sovereignly gifted to you by God. And this is even more significant since the fall, because the truth is, at the fall, God could have just said, that's it, I'm done. At our first moment of sin, God could have said, that's it, you're done. He didn't do that. So we live in an atmosphere of grace every day, being gifted to us by a good God. And he says, don't waste it. Psalm 139, 16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Every single day of your life was planned to be given to you as a gift before you were even born. He goes on to explain in verse 9 the reason that we have to be so quick and careful to enjoy this life, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you've labored under the sun. Solomon says here in context, both the gift of married love and the capacity to enjoy it are part of your earthly reward. So don't waste it. Now there's a fourth and final aspect of life that God's given to us as an expression of a gift that we're to enjoy Aspect number four is hard work. Hard work. And this is verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Notice how he begins there in verse 10. Whatever, whatever your hand finds to do. This refers to any activity that you're engaged in. Certainly it would include your day job. But it's not just your day job. It's whatever. It's all-encompassing. It's, it's anything that God brings into your life throughout the day that you need to accomplish or do. Not just the activities you love and enjoy, but all of the activities that have to happen in order for life to function. He says, do it with all your might. Whatever it is, I want you to give your full and best effort. I want you to work with excellence, he says. Again, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Do it as a command. There's another command given to us. It doesn't matter if your job is frying chicken and making milkshakes. You maximize your frying skills and your mixing skills, and we'll enjoy the good food that comes from that. If you're selling stocks or building houses or working in the medical field, or if you're a homemaker, if you're homeschooling your kids or you're a public school teacher, whatever it is that you have to do, do it and do it with all your might. Kids, if you're in school and you're doing schoolwork, guess what? That's this word whatever as well. That's your whatever you have to do is your schoolwork. The chores that we have to do around the house, mowing the yard, changing the oil, doing the dishes, all of it. Whatever your hand finds to do, he says, I want you to do it and I want you to do it with excellence because, here's the kicker, because work itself is a gift. The work that God has given and your physical capacity to do that work Are both gifts from the hand of a good God. Understand that if you live your whole life trying to hurry through your work so that you can be done working, you will be very discontent in life because God's not designed us for inactivity. That's not to say there's not times for appropriate amounts of rest, but on the whole, God made us with a purpose. Obviously, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, but He put us here to do things, to to subdue the earth, to, to rule over the earth, to care for the earth. We're to do certain tasks. And what that means is that work itself and the capacity to do that work are gifts from God's perfect hand. And He goes on to contrast that gift with the work that we'll be able to do once we've died. Here's the reason that we should think of this as such a gift. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. Now He begins the second half of this verse with the word for. The idea is he's about to list for us some of the things, some of the reasons why we should think of work in this life as a gift He says there's four realities, four things that we will not do once we have died. He says there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, where you're going. Sheol here just means the place of the dead. Now, now some have accused Solomon of of having a, a false view of life after death. But understand, that's not true. That's not what he's talking about here at all. In fact... He's not even saying that Sheol here is our ultimate end. He's just making a point. Solomon knows there is life after death. In fact, in this same book, chapter 12, verse 7, Solomon says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. He understands that when you die, your body goes in the ground, but your spirit goes to be with the Lord. So he's not talking about that. He's simply making the point that as... As human beings who are living in this temporal life, we get to go around one time. You get to live this temporal life once. So make it count, is what he's saying. That planning, the scheming to do things well and how could we build this or how could we accomplish this task and the actual accomplishment of the task and and straining your brain to grow in knowledge and to grow in wisdom, those are things that are an aspect of this temporal life And so he says, enjoy them and do them to the best of your ability because you only get to go around one time. Now, we understand, as we looked at some last week, there is an eternal kingdom in which we will live real lives with real work. He's not talking about that. He's talking about making the most of this life, leaving a mark, making it count, and enjoying life as God intended. Now, Solomon has much more to say. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But I want to rush ahead with the remainder of our time to the conclusion. Because all of this wraps up in Solomon's mind with one big crucial truth. We are called to enjoy life, but he balances that command to enjoy life with this final statement in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. If you want to know what the wisest man who's ever lived other than Christ would say the point of life really is is it's this verse 13 the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil now this concluding statement in Chapter 12 helps us balance the realities that we've studied this morning. This is how we know that when Solomon tells us to enjoy our lives, he's not just telling us to run into hedonism and live life for for pleasure itself. He balances the call to enjoy life with the call to remember that the reason we're really here, the most important thing in your life, in this temporal life, is your relationship to your Creator. To know God Himself. And he brings to mind the fact that in the end, God will bring to judgment the way we've chosen to live our lives in this temporal fallen world. And so he balances the call to truly enjoy God's gifts with the call to enjoy them in a way that pleases God, in a way that's in alignment with his commandments, because knowing and fearing God is the most important aspect of our lives. And so this morning, as you think about this text and how to apply it to your own life, the first place you have to begin is really where Solomon ends. And that is by asking yourself, do you have a right relationship with God? Because the enjoyment of life in the way that God intends hinges on having a right relationship with God. It is when we come to know God and forgiveness of sins through His Son that we then begin to understand the real meaning of life and we're able to appreciate the small things in life that God has given to us for what they are. Understand that what Solomon is calling us to is repentance, to think about our lives. Understand that the Scriptures describe us all as sinners. We are those who deserve the wrath of God, the punishment of God because of our sins. But God in His kindness has made a way for us to know Him and to be reconciled to Him by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to live a perfect life and then to sacrifice that life on the cross to pay for our sins. The Bible says He rose again on the third day, proving that He is the Son of God and that the Father had accepted His sacrifice. And that for all who will turn from their sins and repentance, placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they will indeed be saved So that when they come to that judgment day that Solomon warns about, they will be forgiven and found innocent, not in the sense that they never sinned, but in the sense that God has applied the righteousness of his own son to their account. So we no longer have to fear that final judgment. But in order for you to apply what we've learned today, begin at the end. Do you personally... Have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then, I want you to think on these two points of application. If you're in Christ this morning, let me encourage you to take Solomon's words to heart. And think on this. Are you characterized by a perspective of gratitude and thanksgiving? Are you personally characterized by a perspective of gratitude and thanksgiving? Because when we enjoy life in the way God intends, and we see the, the blessings He's given, it, it brings about a heart of thankfulness. We, we find ourselves constantly giving thanks to God, even for the smallest of things, because we understand they come from His hand. Secondly, are you missing God's good, good gifts because you're distracted by life's vanities? Are the vanities of life so preoccupying your mind that you're missing out on the good gifts that God has given to you in this temporal life? Obviously, all of us, if you're in Christ, have been given this eternal gift of salvation. That's more than enough. But He's also gifted us with so many small temporal blessings for which we ought to enjoy and be grateful. So, as you think about leaving this morning, I want to leave you with four sort of application assignments, things to take and think about this week as you let this permeate in your own heart. Number one, I would invite you to take stock of your current attitude towards your life in general. Take stock of your attitude about your life. How do you think about your life? Do you have a a good perspective of, of the blessings God has brought into your life? Secondly, I want to encourage you to meditate on the gifts God has given you in life. List them out. Verbalize them to the Lord. Give thanks for what he's done. That's the third one. Commit to thanking God for these gifts. As you begin to list out all the, the things and leave nothing out, even the simplest things. Put them all on the list. And then begin cultivating a heart that gives thanks to God for those things. And then fourthly, commit to enjoying these gifts in the way God intends. As we've said already, this kind of life requires intentionality. It means that we've got to slow down. We've got to analyze our thoughts. And we've got to bring those thoughts into the light of God's word and scripture and test them. And anything that doesn't add up, we throw those out. We fill our minds with truth. And then we look at our life through that lens. And when we do that, We'll find ourselves enjoying life, even in a fallen world, in the way that God has designed. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is both deeply theological and yet deeply practical. Getting into our daily lives and the way that we're to think about the the great gifts that you've given Obviously, the pinnacle gift of your son, but even down to the food that we eat, the things that we drink, the company that we share, the friendships, and the gift of things like marriage. God, we we ask that you would help us not to waste our lives distracted by the vanities in our lives instead of giving thanks and enjoying the wonderful gifts that you've given. And God, we confess that we fail at that. Far too often, we are discontent and desiring more and looking across the fence at what we believe would be greener pastures instead of just relishing the good gifts that you've given. Help us to do that better. But God, help us also to prize above all our relationship with you. Christ is the greatest gift, and we long for the day when we will be eternally with him in his presence, rid of sin But until that day, may we live even here and even now for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.